I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and how uh, challenging it is to us. It is light that it brings both truth and hope and purity uh, into our lives. It shows us your character. And uh, we pray uh, uh, that you would open our eyes, give us ears to hear as we hear from you now, and send your spirit that you would apply these words to, to each one of our lives. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we've begun a series on uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, first letter to the, the church in Corinth. And uh, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we had our introduction on that, uh, Paul actually planted this church. It was in Corinth. He went there when he was on his missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean world. And uh, he was there for a year and a half. He was teaching people, training leaders. And then he left the church. You know, trusted God to with the church and said, I'm going to go on and plant more churches. And then it turned out that this church was having some problems. And so they wrote him letters asking for some advice and some counsel. And so he's uh, writing them back in this letter, answering some of those questions. And, uh, you know, Corinth, which uh, was one of the great port cities of the uh, Mediterranean world uh, we talked about, was a, a diverse cosmopolitan city. Uh, it was one of the great uh, colonies of the Roman Empire. And... Um, what that means is it was tremendously diverse because it was a port city. It was uh, sexually diverse, uh, religiously very diverse, so, uh, socially and economically very diverse. There were all different kinds of people there. And um, as a result, it, um, when Paul planted this church, the church that he planted was filled with people from all these different kinds of backgrounds, and they were stuck together uh, to be in this family. And that's, you know, one, that's one of the great things about Jesus' kingdom is that when Jesus saves people, he takes them, he saves them into this family, and they're all different, and he puts them together. And, um, and he sticks us with people that are, have different personalities, different histories, um, uh, different backgrounds. And, you know, it's very much like your biological family, right? You know, when you're born into your family, you didn't get to pick any of those people. And some of you may have felt that when you were growing up. Like, I don't even why am I in this family? I don't even fit in. I don't get along with these people. I don't know them. We have different personalities. And the Lord does that. He just sticks us with these people that are different than us. And it's the same way, again, when we, not just when we're born into a family, but when we're born again, as the Bible says, we're born again into a new family. We have a new father. And we're stuck with people that we may not have picked. And yet, uh, the Lord wants us to live together and uh, to love one another and to be formed into a family. And according to Jesus, making this new family here into a loving, united, and nurturing community 
is possibly the most important business of your whole spiritual life. The most important business of your spiritual life is making this a united, a united uh, uh, community filled with love. Now, if you don't believe me, um, Ben Witherington is a uh, he's New Testament scholar. He's one of the, he's one of the best commentators on First Corinthians. And one of the things that he, he's an expert in is Greco-Roman rhetoric. And one of the things he did is he kind of mapped out the whole 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And what is the structure? What's the train of thought that's happening in 1 Corinthians? And one of the things that he says is that this passage that we just read in verse 10 is the, um, the, main, the, the thesis statement of the whole book. If you want to know what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is about, you look at uh, verse 10. And it, look at verse 10. This is what Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And um, this main point, that you be united, is the, same, is the thing that Paul is going to be reinforcing uh, every chapter of this letter as he goes through, saying, this is the main thing I want to point. I want to apply the gospel to your life so that you are united into a united body. And with all these diverse, diverse backgrounds, this is God's priority for us. And, you know, of course, the Lord Jesus says the same thing. You know, by this, all will know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. The way that the gospel is worked out in our lives is our, our life of love and unity being bound together as a unified body. And um, so how do we do that? Okay, that's God's symbol to the world of the truth of the gospel is that we're united loving each other. So how do we do that? How do we be different than a world that is fractured, you know, with envy, bitterness, competition? How do, how do we be a different kind of people? Well, um, in this passage, I want to highlight four things that Paul tells us about how we be that community, that symbol to the world of the truth of the gospel. And these are the four things. First of all, unity comes through a commitment. Unity to a body comes through a commitment, a pledge to one another. Second, unity comes through tolerance. Now, I know that's a popular word in our culture. It's a different kind of tolerance, I think, in the Bible, but it, it, it's there nonetheless. Third, unity comes through the sacraments, which may be an interesting thing that surprises you. And fourth, ultimately, unity comes through the gospel, the truth of the gospel. The gospel itself forms the unity among us. So those are the four things we're going to look at as we look at this passage together. The first is this, that unity comes through a commitment. And you might say, or you might say that it comes through a commandment, right? It's something that you're told to do. It's, a, it, you know, it, it's, it's an obligation you have. So verse 10, you know, it's interesting here. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He, Paul sees this as a commandment. That we be unified is a commandment that Paul seems to think we can obey. And we just have a commitment to. And actually, uh, that word there uh, uh, for united, it's a word that, as used in the Gospels, uh, when, you know, the disciples were fishermen, and it talks about when you mend uh, fishing nets together, when they get ripped apart. And so part, apparently, you know, Paul sees us, we're like this fishing net that's supposed to be gathering people from all over the world to come and know the love of Christ. And, be, and if we have rips, then the people are going to slip through, and we're not going to catch them. And so Paul is saying we need to mend those fishing nets. That's what it means to be united. And, uh, and, um, the thing, and one of the things that he's saying is that our unity does not come as a result of our feelings towards one another, but it comes as a pledge 
a principle, that on principle, I'm going to live at unity with these people. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that work. And that's one of the reasons, you know, if you're a member of our church, when you become a member, one of the vows that you take is this. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? It is a pledge that you make that on principle, I'm a person that seeks unity in the body of Christ. That's just how I act. And, uh, you know, this is an important thing for us because, you know, as I've mentioned, community is an important thing for people in Bellingham in the Northwest. That's, I mean, I think one of the things a lot of us are looking for here in this community. And yet we often think of community as a very spontaneous thing that happens. You know, it's kind of a sentimental view of I'm going to find people that I just, there's an energy, there's a chemistry there, and we just click, and I love being there. And, of course, you know, God gives us that. That's a blessing to have that with people, you know, a certain spark. But in any relationship, even where there's the best chemistry, eventually conflict is going to come. And so the Bible doesn't have nearly the kind of sentimental view of of what maintains uh, community as we might, as our culture might. Um, It has a much more honest view, is that you're going to have divisions and you need to work through them. There's going to be ruptures. There's going to be rending in uh, in the nets and you need to mend those nets. And so, um, now, the reason why that's important for us is because for most of us, when we have conflict in a church, we have one of two responses, right? Fight or flight, right? When there's, when there's conflict, you're either the kind of person who is very defensive, and you're going to go after that person. You're going to take that person down. You're going to show them that you're right, and you, get on the, you, know, you have a tendency towards being aggressive, and some of you say, that's not me at all. I, I run from conflict. If there's conflict, someone has a problem with me, I don't want to make eye contact with them. I'm going to be on the other side of the room from them. I don't want to see them. I want, I want to pretend it doesn't exist. And, um, and because of both of these, we have a tendency that when a conflict comes up in the church, we just say, I can't be a part of that community anymore. There's conflict there. I can't walk into the conflict. So I can't stay there. And so we leave which is the exact opposite of what Paul's saying, that we need to have a commitment. And beforehand, before the, before the conflict comes, we need to be resolved that I'm a person that does not leave conflict unaddressed. But I walk into it lovingly. How do we do that? How do we obey this command? The Bible insists that it be the habit of your Christian life to lovingly and patiently walk through conflict and seek out peace and reconciliation with your brothers and sisters. The Bible insists that it is a habit of your life that I go seek those things out. I go talk to those people. And um, now, let me just tell you, to lovingly and patiently walk through conflict and seek peace and reconciliation with people, let me tell you a couple things that that's not, okay? First of all, reconciliation is not pretending that there's no serious ruptures in relationships, okay? It's not ignoring the problems that are there and just saying, well, I just forgive them and let's not even name it. That's not, you know, that's not what God did with us, right? Like, we were in rebellion. We sinned against God. We rebelled against God. And how did God reconcile with us? Did he say, oh, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. Forget about it, you know? No, he doesn't do that. He, Jesus has to die on the cross which is a statement of what we deserve. He's saying this is how heinous the crime is against God, is that Jesus had to die for it, and yet God loves us, and that he wants to forgive us. He wants peace with us. He wants to be reconciled to us. And so what the cross, the cross is a statement of both honesty and grace. 
God is being honest with us in the cross, saying, this is, this is, this is what your sin looks like. And yet, I love you, and I want to embrace you. It's both honesty and grace working together. So it, reconciliation is not pretending that there's no conflicts or problems, okay? Now, I should say, though, there is a regular habit also in a church, a healthy church, to overlook sins. Okay, there are going to be lots of sins that you don't have to have a conversation about, right? There are lots of things where you can say, you know, the person gave me a bad look. They were probably having a bad day. I know they're going through some stuff. Forget about it, right? The, Proverbs 19:11 it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. <laughs> that should, we should, because God, God doesn't deal with all of our sins. He doesn't name every single one of our sins and say, we need to hash this out. He overlooks all kinds of sins. And he's selective about the ones that he wants to bring to our attention, right? And so we're that way too. We know when there are certain conflicts that this really needs to be talked about. And we know that there are other ones that we can kind of let go, right? So, but the second thing that reconciliation is not, not pretending that there's no rupture, but it's also reconciliation is not about simply venting at people, right? This is something we have to be careful about because, you know, in our culture, we live in a culture that's, uh, that's learned a tremendous amount about psychology through therapy. We're a very thera- therapeutically driven culture. And so we've learned that, you know, a lot of the things that we do is because other people wounded us and we need to come to terms with the things that other people wounded us, kind of a victim mentality. And so as a result, we think being honest, where we have an opportunity to tell someone all the things that they've done to us, we think that we have liberty to just open up and unload on them, right? And you know, this may have happened to some of you where uh, you know, uh, someone goes through counseling and they realize, you know, my parents made a lot of mistakes when I was growing up. And now they feel liberty to just unload on their parents. You don't have a right as a Christian to do that. All right? Now, you, there are some things that you may have to come to terms with, honestly, about your family, but you have to do that in a way that is loving and forgiving and patient, the way that God has dealt with you. Okay? So there, this is not liberty for us to just vent at one another. And uh, the Bible calls us to walk through uh, conflict lovingly, hopefully, faithfully, and seeking reconciliation and healing. And, uh, you know, let me just say this, that I, I know for uh, a number of you, as, uh, as I bring this up about conflict, there are probably conflicts in your life, probably, maybe most of us, that are coming to mind. And um, one of the things that I want to say is that these, these are some of the most important relationships. The, the things that God is doing in your life are probably in these conflicts. Now, I, I want to add one caveat. When we make a commitment to one another and to, our, to God and to ourselves that we are going to pursue reconciliation, we're going to enter into conflicts where there's rupture, that have been ruptured, let me make one caveat. There's only so much that you can do to create reconciliation. And the Bible acknowledges that. In uh, Romans 12:18, Paul says, listen to this double, double kind of qualifica- qualification. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So he's saying there is, you should be pursuing reconciliation, but there are going to be times where someone just, they don't want to talk to you. They don't want anything to do with you. And they don't want to walk through anything. They don't want to sit down and work through things. Okay? It's okay. You can let that go. You don't have to carry that. Okay? So this is complex. There's a lot going on there. But at, at, the, at the basis, when Paul is making this commandment, he's saying it should be a principle of our life to pursue reconciliation. Now, 
what does the Bible tell us about how to live at peace, you know, have this sense of unity together as a church? How do, how do we do that? Well, this is the second thing we want to look at, is that not just that unity comes through a commitment to one another, but also unity comes through tolerance. And uh, tolerance, you know, a favorite word in our culture that, you know, we should be tolerant of people that are different than us. And uh, we should be slow as Christians to just throw out that word. I mean, I think as Christians, of course, there are things that our conscience, we can't just tolerate and say are okay. God has given us all kinds of commandments to shape how we view the world. And yet, um, I think that we should seek to grab onto places where we can be tolerant of people wherever we can, especially with each other. Okay, and you see this here. Look at verse 11. Paul says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there, are, there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or Cephas is Peter, or I follow Christ. Now what's happening in this church is that all these people in the church have their kind of favorite leader that they're following, right? Some person says, I love Paul. He writes these great letters and they're full of theology. Such a thinker. I love thinker. And then Apollos is the, you know, powerful preacher. He's eloquent. Everyone's just saying, I'm so moved when he's talking. He speaks to my heart. I love Apollos. And then other people say, Peter was Jesus' best friend. You know, they, were, they had this intimacy and closeness. I love that. And, and then actually some of the people say, oh, I don't follow any of this. I follow Christ. I follow Jesus. That's the only one I follow. Which sounds pious, and Jesus is the only one I'm committed to. But let me just tell you, actually, I knew a guy who took a similar track in his spiritual life, and he, uh, he had a library full of books. He threw away all the books. I don't know if he burned them or threw them away or something, but you know, maybe he didn't want other people reading them either. And he just said, you know, I'm not going to listen to any of these teachers. I'm just going to read the Bible. It's me and the Bible. Which sounds like, wow, he's really, you know, honest about the Bible. He reads the Bible. And yet, what's he really doing? He's saying, I don't need anyone to teach me about Jesus. I don't need any other Christians to give me instruction about Jesus. And actually, what he was doing with his books mirrored what he was doing with actually the actual people in his life. He would shut out all the Christians in his life, and he didn't have any relationships or community because he was so isolated. And so actually, there was a tremendous amount of pride that was in that statement that I only follow Christ. And so there's all these ways that we um, form tribes in the church in certain things that are the, the things that we're devoted to that no one else gets this, and this is the most important thing that divides us. And the Bible calls us, therefore, to, to be tolerant, and maybe I should use the word celebrating. I know that's another word that our culture uses, but we should celebrate people that are different than us, that have different convictions than we do. And I'll just tell you, that's a big hope of mine in this church. Because I know that there are some of you who are, you know, theology nerds, and you're like, let's, let's read some books, and let's get down to the technical terms, and let's talk about it. I want you in our church. I want our church to be the theological and thoughtful. Some of you say, listen, we're talking about all these big words, and let's, we should be reaching our neighbor and evangelizing. And let's have a simple faith and invite people in and be loving. You want to do that? Yes. Please. We need you here. Some of you say we need to care for the poor, for the needy, for the, the kids in our neighborhood and bring them in. All of these things we need, and we need to have a sense of celebration that we need each other. And we're bringing different convictions and passions uh, to the body, and we need to celebrate these things. And, you know, I'll tell you, a big time in my life that was, uh, where my life really changed um, was when I went to seminary in 2006. Before I went to seminary, I was a the theology guy. 
And I loved reading books of theology. I, I loved studying the Bible. And I actually, in my life, I was finding that the number of people that were Christians that I was really excited about their faith was becoming smaller and smaller. The number of people that I felt a sense of unity with was becoming smaller and smaller. And I, when I went to seminary, I read a book by a guy named Leslie Newbigin called Proper Confidence. And it completely changed my life. Because what, it, what I realized was, I thought, I'm just reading the Bible. I'm devoted to God's word. But I actually found out that I had all kinds of things that I wanted the Bible to say, that I was bringing to the Bible. And I was blind to all other areas of the Bible except the parts that were confirming the things that I already said, that were patting me on the back and saying, Nate, aren't you smart? And here's another verse that you can use to prove your point. And I was realizing that I was bringing all kinds of assumptions to the Bible. And when I realized that, it gave me pause to begin to listen to people that were different than me and that had different convictions. Now, obviously, I still believe that God is, the Bible is the authoritative word of God. We, every week we go through passages of the Bible to study it, but it opened me up to have a sense of embracing wherever we, I can the Christians among us. And I'll just, you know, I'll tell you, uh, two weeks ago I was at General Assembly for our denomination. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian Church in America is our denomination, and we had a General Assembly where all the pastors in the country come together and do church business, and uh, it was actually, many have said it was, it was the best general assembly in the history of our denomination. I've heard people say that because there was a sense of unity. There was a sense of love, and, and there were people tearing each other apart, and uh, actually there was a Korean pastor who got up and preached, and just, it was a delightful sermon, and uh, this guy's a, a Korean-American pastor in, in uh, Florida, and he, but he was, he was warning us against this as Presbyterian Reformed people who are very theological to be careful of our divisiveness. And he said that in Korea, there are a hundred Presbyterian denominations just in South Korea. A hundred, not churches, denominations, which I had heard that in the United States and Canada there were 45, which is just a tremendous amount of splintering that happens in the tradition that we're a part of. This passage is a charge to us that we must resist that. We must, as a local congreg congregation, resist that wherever we can. And um, because there's a strong temptation to divide. Now, how does God remind us of the fact that we need to be unified with one another? How does he, how does he do that? How does he create that in this community? Well, the third thing we see in this passage is, I think maybe a surprising thing to some of us of where unity comes from because the third thing we see is that not just that unity comes through a commitment and it comes through a sense of tolerance with one another but also unity comes through the sacraments unity comes through the sacraments and uh, uh, the Bible tells us there are two sacraments that Jesus gave to his church baptism and the Lord's Supper Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you see here that Paul points to their baptism, the Corinthians' baptism. He brings up baptism in the middle of this discussion as he's thinking about their unity. And this is what he says, verse 13, second half of verse 13. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, this may sound like Paul is downplaying baptism and saying, actually, baptism is not that important. You're making too big a deal of baptism. But that's actually not what he's saying. He's saying they thought that their baptism, whoever did the baptism, you know, it, they were baptized into that teacher. Like, I was baptized into Paul. I was baptized into Apollos or Peter. 
And what he's saying, no, you were all baptized into Christ, into, the, in, into Christ's name. This is a sign of your unity together. He's given you a physical um, sign of who you are. Why is it important that God give us these physical signs? Baptism, you know, that we have water on us and that we have bread and wine. Why are these things so... Why does God think these are such an important part of our spiritual life? Well, the reason is because we are symbolic, embodied humans. You and I are not united simply by ideas. We are united by the things that we do together. Okay? That, that, that's how... That's how human life is, right? How is a family united together? They need to do things together. They need to have dinner together regularly and talk with one another. You have certain rituals and traditions that you do together that, that form your sense of unity. And, uh, you know, if you're watching the World Cup and you go down to Copper Hog and there's 100 other people there, and what are they doing? They're all wearing jerseys and they got things that they're, you know thrown around like this, is because it's not enough to just say, oh, by the way, I root for the U.S. We need to find a way to embody it. And so we get a shirt. And we need something that says, this is who I belong to. And, um, there's, uh, and this is one of the reasons that in our church we take the Lord's Supper every week, right? As we come together, God's given us this meal. And what do, I, what do we say when you come forward? Greet one another. This is your unity. You know, when you come together, you should look at the other people, take that bread, piece of bread and put it in their mouth. You'd be like, wow, they're eating that bread. Christ is in them. Christ in me, too. We're one loaf. You're supposed to look at it. Kids, for those of you who come, uh, come and take communion with us, when you take that bread, look at the other people taking the bread. And you say, Christ, Jesus is in them. Jesus is in me. As we eat this bread together. And actually, one of the things that's going to happen at the end of 1 Corinthians, we have Paul's most detailed teaching about this bread and wine. What is this all about? And at, in the Corinthian church, right, you know, the Corinthian, Corinth was this diverse city, and you had all these rich people, and you had these poor people. It was really diverse. They come into the church, and they, they, they did communion differently than we do it, and, uh, and the, the rich people are all getting drunk, and the poor people are waiting on them. Just like they do out in the Corinthian city, they're like, well, that's how we do it out there. So poor people wait on us, and if there's leftovers, you can have some. And Paul says, you need to examine yourselves because you are taking the supper in an unworthy manner. Some of you have heard that language before. It's not talking about they need to close their eyes and look in their hearts of whether they can take the supper. He's saying, you are divided. You should be, the rich people should be serving the poor people. They should be serving each other. Because this is a sign. God has given us these signs to say, you are a unified body. And uh, let me just tell you, uh, let me give you an example of the power of this. Um, in the ninth century, in medieval Europe, um, the church uh, made a decree that uh, a, anyone that you take communion with, you cannot make into your slave. You cannot have as a slave. And that uh, slaves were allowed to take communion if they were Christians. So all of a sudden, you had all these people who were taking communion, who were, you know, slaveholders, the wealthy, and they're taking communion next to these slaves, and they have to make a decision. I either have to choose Christ, or I need to treat this brother as an equal. And actually, in the, in the ninth century, the, the beginning of the abolition of, of slavery began. Now, they didn't have freedom in the way that we think of freedom in the United States, but Christians were dealing with slavery through 
this simple bread and wine. The Spirit used this to transform the church. As we come together, this meal has power for us as well. But as we come to this meal, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, what are they signs of? What do they point us to? Baptism is a cleansing, right? Cleansing of our sins. It's a cross. It's a sign of the cross. You were buried with him in baptism. What What is this meal a sign of? As long as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until his coming. Both these are signs of Jesus' death on the cross. And this is the last and most important aspect of where does unity come from in a church is that unity comes through the gospel. It is the gospel. It is Jesus Christ crucified as the centerpiece for our church that gives us a sense of unity and, and community. And you see that there, verse, verse 13. What, is, what does Paul say? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Was Paul crucified for you? What he's saying is that the way to unity is to continually ask ourselves, who was who crucified for me and who's crucified for you? And as we see one another, see myself and see you, in light of Christ's death on the cross for us, it is the key to peace and reconciliation. And you see that Paul again focuses on the message of the cross. Verse 17, look at that again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so it is with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ crucified that we enter into conflict. How do we enter into conflict and resolve conflict with one another? We are fixing our eyes on Jesus crucified for us. That's how we do it, not fighting, not aggressively, not in denial either. We do it honestly and lovingly and with, filled with grace and patience, listening carefully is by looking at the cross. And let me just say these last couple things. That, um, the, the reason for this is because the cross gives both the motivation and the shape of reconciliation, right? It gives the motivation... Because when we look at the cross, we see that we were alienated from God. And God wanted to be uh, mended with us. He wanted to be reconciled with us. And even while we were still angry with him, while we were still hostile and his enemies, he died for us. While we were still sinners, he sought reconciliation. If that's the defining truth of my life, that God sought reconciliation with me, how can that not be the defining thing of my life in my relationships around me? to seek reconciliation, if God did that for me. But also the cross gives the shape of reconciliation. How does reconciliation happen? As we look at Jesus, we see that he gave up all his rights to die for us. He was equal with God. Uh, He gave up his security. He gave up the, the honor that was due him. And, and he was innocent and, and died a shameful cr- death on the cross. When you seek reconciliation, it always involves you dying to yourself. It always involves a giving up of rights. If you're married, you know this, right? If you want peace in your marriage, you have to give up your rights. If you have uh, relationships uh, in here, your brothers and sisters, family, it is a giving up of your rights to begin to say, okay, first I'm going to think about what am I contributing to this conflict? And to name those things. And there's a tremendous amount of risk in that, right? When you name your own contribution to a conflict, you're going to say, what are they going to do with that? They're going to jump all over it and say, yeah, you're right, you did all those things. And so the only way that we can enter into conflict is by trusting the Lord. And let me just tell you, let me just, for those of you who are thinking, yeah, I have conflicts in my life. I, I have people that I need to sit down and talk with. 
it never looks like, feels like a sense of control. It looks like you walk into that relationship and you trust the Lord and you say, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know how this is going to go. But I need your spirit to be with me, to give me words uh, to handle this. And when those conflicts happen, this is the most important thing that God brings into your life to form Christ in you. Can you hear that? The most important thing in your life to form Christ in you is for you to walk into difficult relationships and conflict and, and, and address them in a way that is peaceful and gracious and honest. The most important things. Which also says, if that's true, God has probably orchestrated conflict in your life. He has probably brought it because he wants to form Christ in you. Some of you grew up in families when there was conflict and no one talked about it and it didn't go addressed. And nothing happened. It pretended it was not there. It was like a cancer that just grew inside of your family. And there's still division, and there's not intimacy and tenderness. And God wants to change that. So how, how's the only way he can change that? Is to bring conflict into your life. And for you to trust him and to enter into it. And he is most glorified when we do that. And so let me, can I just say that? This is the important business of your life, to work out the gospel. When you think through, what are the ramifications of the fact that God has made peace with me? What are the ramifications? It is this. And how do we handle it? We must have a commitment that when those conflicts, when those ruptures and relationships come, I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit and talk to that person. And we must have a sense of tolerance. We look for anything that we can grab onto to be tolerant with each other and to celebrate each other. We look for anything. We can't tolerate everything, but we're going to look for things that we can. And we come to the sacraments every week. And this is a part of our reflection as we come together. That God is, We're reminded God is binding us together as a body and we keep Jesus Christ crucified before our eyes. That this is what God has done for us. And uh, God has equipped us for unity, and this is the big business which we must be about as we seek to have Jesus shape our life together. Let's pray.